Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Let's begin our service by turning in our church hymnal to hymn number 12. Song number 12. Number thirty seven. Oh 
to 1 John chapter 3. Our, um, our scripture in the Sunday school lesson uh, comes from a lot of places, but it begins with the words little children, and little children also occurs in this passage here. And that's one of the things that I would like to focus on uh, throughout the reading of this passage. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for, this, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. 
He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. Going back to the first part of this passage, there's some inspirational words here to me. Um, it says, Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We live in the present because that's what we're bound to given our, our mortal bodies. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that this is, you know, the portion of time that we're living in is, well, in other places in the Bible, it, it says our lives are but a vapor, um, seemingly here one minute and gone the next. And beyond that is eternity. And right now we live as the sons of God. And it says here that in the scope of eternity, we do not, know, we do not yet know what we shall be except that we do know that we shall be like Christ. And we do have an important glimpse into what being like Christ is, and that should be one of our driving focuses throughout our daily life is to become more like Christ. And one thing that is a repeating theme through John's epistles and his gospel is the references to children. Um, many times uh, you'll see throughout, especially John's epistles, the words little children. And it's easy to lose sight of what little children we are. And it takes, I think it takes some some humility to to admit and to and to perceive ourselves as little children and in this time that we're on earth in our mortal bodies i would say from birth to death we would do well to count ourselves as little children now not everything about little children is positive there are certain uh, traits that children need to discard um, as they grow up into an adult. Um, but the, the innocence 
and sometimes the selflessness that that a child can express I think can be an inspiration to us continuing on to verse 16 Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And often in my mind when I see references in the Bible to laying down our lives for the brethren, my mind goes to, you know, in days of persecution when someone may have to sacrifice their, their life to save the life of a brother or the lives of the brethren, and who knows, within, within our lifetime, we may, we may see that level of persecution again. I don't know. We may not. But that doesn't keep us from, that doesn't keep us from being able to lay down our lives for the brethren. And I speak to myself, first of all, It's not always easy to lay down our lives for the brethren, especially well, considering all the opportunities that we may have and, and that we may, might choose not to see, I guess. Because we don't, we don't only lay down our lives for the brethren in death, and I think the people who have, the brethren who have laid down their lives in the past in death for their other brethren, if you could look back on their lives, I think you could see a pattern of that brother or sister daily laying down their lives for the sake of the brethren and for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom. So I just want to challenge you all to keep your eyes peeled for the chance to maybe lay down a little bit of your time, maybe lay down a few encouraging words um, or maybe some time in prayer for a brother or sister that you see the need of. And with those thoughts in mind, uh, let's kneel for prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for giving us an oppor another opportunity this morning to meet together and fellowship within your house and to worship you. Pray that our our minds would be on your word and what it has for us. Um, pray that the distractions of the past week and the coming week would um, be gone for a time so that we can have our ears and hearts open for a word from you. Pray that we can all remember to support each other in whatever way that you see fit. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. offering today is for Christian Day Schools.
uh, classes may be assembled. You know, I've heard it said in a secular setting that everything that we ever do is is based on selfish reasons, even if it's even if it's loving or kind. Every every last action that we take is is selfish, whether whether we're doing it to look good to other people or maybe we're just doing it to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. It's said, again in secular settings, that anything that anybody ever does is selfish, even if it's a even if it's an act of kindness and even if it's sacrificial. And it's inspiring to me to think um, of how untrue that can be when we have the Spirit of God living inside us and that we can and that, and that our own good feelings or being seen of men doesn't have to motivate us and shouldn't motivate us in, in the things that we do for others and the sacrifices that we make. Attendance today is 82. The offering amounted to $4,756.02. This concludes Sunday School. Good morning. It's good to see each of y'all here this morning. Next Sunday's offering will be for Mennonite Air Missions and Heritage Bible School. Activities of the week, <clears throat> excuse me, this evening here at 7 o'clock will be a program by the Jeff Hobbs family. And then also this week, uh, Southeastern Mennonite Conference begins Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock with a message entitled, The Brotherhood's Role in Church Discipline, which is by John Slaybach. And then Thursday, the public session of the conference begins at 10 o'clock a.m. And there will also be an evening session at 7 o'clock with another message entitled, The Blessings of, the, of a Disciplined Church. Friday evening for the youth is here at Pike Church Basement at 7 o'clock. is a taffy pool is planned for the youth. And birthdays this week. Wednesday, January 18, is Sue Rhodes. Thursday, January 19, is Brandon Hartman. Thursday, January 19, is Brianne Hartzler. And Saturday, January 21, is Donna Beery. Is there any other announcements that I should have mentioned or missed? All right, at this time we'll take prayer requests. And I've asked Dallas to lead our prayer. What prayer requests would y'all have today? Janice flies to Jordan tomorrow. Okay, Janice flies to Jordan tomorrow. I believe Nelson brings a message for us this morning. And I think Evan is it. Mount Herman and Ellis is at McGackiesville, so that's where they're at today. So, Craig? Uh, just thanks. I need to know about it. But our little girl is supposed to go to 
Okay. So Craig's taken their daughter for a checkup on her heart murmur and no leakage, everything's fine. So praise report. Thank the Lord for that. All right, this time let's kneel for prayer. This time could be led in a song and then we'll turn the time over to Brother Nelson. Turn in your hymns of the church to song number 686. 686.
morning. It's a blessing to be here and to share in the fellowship of worship of the one who gave his, his dying love for us. Appreciate that selection of song. You know, it's, it's interesting to reflect on, on what Jesus has done for us and how that affects our, our daily experience and how it affects why we're here this morning. Before I get into the message, I'd like to take this opportunity to say that Marie and I have been very blessed by the support of this congregation. Uh, we've experienced a lot of gifts and, and notes of of encouragement over the time of her father's passing um, through the, the holiday season through Marie's struggle with her health issues and we really appreciate your prayers and your love that we've we've experienced in many ways and I'd just like to give a little bit of a, a progress report on Marie uh, we had one of those on Greg's daughter um, she's been faith facing some real challenges in the last little while with tests and, and treatments and so on, and, and we've asked for your prayers and all that, and we thank you. Um, your prayers have been answered, and Marie is, is doing better. Um, we were the doctor this past week, and I was, uh, we were blessed to, to recount our our time with him and, and his response and his perspective, he was actually amazed that Marie was doing as well as she was. And he didn't say this, but it almost seemed like he was conveying to us that he was surprised to even see her come back to his office. Given the prognosis uh, of her earlier experience, um, he basically said, you're a miracle. And we, told him that it's the result of the prayers of our brothers and sisters. And, and it was kind of interesting what he said. He said, and we said it wasn't just a few prayers, it was a lot of prayers. It was a number of churches. He said, well, you're evidently part, a small part of the big part of the body of Christ. And he's sure that a lot of prayers were rendered in our behalf. And he acknowledged that Marie's still here and experiencing health, better health, because of all those prayers. And so I felt, we felt that it was a, an experience of giving testimony to the goodness of God and it was received appropriately. And so we wanna thank you all for being part of that. It's, it's a real blessing to be part of a, a body of believers that where you, you experience the love, the 
that was talked about in our Sunday School lesson this morning. And I may talk a little bit more about that in the message. For the message this morning, I've given it the title, A Faith That Reveals the Power of the Gospel. We hear about the power of the gospel, we actually sing. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Do we understand what we're saying? Have we experienced it? Are we experiencing that reality? I don't think we would say we would answer that in the negative, but are we really uh, living the full reality of what God has provided for us in that regard? I'm not saying that or judging that we're somehow inferior to God's desire and design, but on the other hand, the reality is that we never can quite fully attain. And so the challenge is, where am I in my pursuit of God's will for my life and, and experiencing the possibilities and the realities that he has established for my good and for our good as a, bo as a body and brotherhood? And as I thought about this, my mind was take, drawn to 1 Peter. And it's kind of interesting. We had a little touch of that in the Sunday School lesson this morning. But I'd like to go way, well beyond that. If you like, you may turn to 1 Peter to follow along. <clears throat> I would like to expound on this whole, whole book this morning. Time won't permit an in-depth evaluation of this. But there's some things here that I, I feel... Um, really challenge us and, and help us to grasp, grasp some of these, these uh, thoughts and considerations about where are we. And as I've read through the book of uh, Peter's uh, epistle, the first book of Peter, I've read through it a number of times, and I was looking for something. What was the main focus or the main heartthrob on Peter's mind and heart when he wrote this epistle? What was, what was the, the, the thing that he was trying to reinforce, the thing that he was trying to challenge? Was there a main focus, a main central theme? He gives a lot of different perspectives. There's a lot of different ideas, throws in, and, and it's, it's like he just kind of unloads a lot of random thoughts in five chapters. But I believe there's, there is a central theme. And it's what I want us to focus on and, and draw from this morning in our own experience and, and spiritual reality. <clears throat> I'd like to read a couple of verses beginning at verse 1 especially noting verse 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. It's a wide range of audience he's reaching out to. And we are included in those scattered... Those we should be uh, attended to right before Christ returns. 
and that would include us. Those people that were existing when he wrote this, that didn't apply to. Well, the looking forward and, and pre preparation of the heart was relevant, but the fact that they were at the very end of time wasn't relevant. But for us, it very well may be. And if not, we are still included in the, in the admonitions that he's giving here and who he's writing to. <clears throat> he goes on to say, in verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now I think we can see the focus of this, of this book right here in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God, through sanctification of your life, a continual walk in sanctification with God. And, and this only happens through our connection with the Holy Spirit. He says, sanctified through sanctification of the Holy Spirit unto, unto what? Obedience. Obedience to the will of God, to the word of God. And so it's living a life of obedience because we are able to be sanctified through the Holy Spirit's work in our life. And he explains that. He says, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now we use some of these phrases. We hear these phrases. Do we really understand what he's really drawing us to understand? What does it mean to, to reference the sprinkling of the blood of Christ? When you wake up in the morning and you're getting dressed, you're preparing yourself for the day and having your devotions, your meditation, maybe Maybe you do that in the evening, but uh, and as, as you enter into your life's walk each day, do you think about, I've got to sprinkle the Lord's blood on my life today? What is, if you did, what are you thinking? What does it mean? Well, I'm not saying that that's really the way it works. However, I believe that there needs to be a consciousness of our call to sanctification, and we need to have a certain understanding and knowledge. Uh, he, he says here, according to the foreknowledge of God, and that's God's knowledge, but we need to be understanding the will of God. And so the message this morning is to hopefully draw from Peter's heartbeat as to what should make us tick in a spiritual reality. He mentions the blood, and he mentions grace often in this passage. And so I'd like for us to have a renewed understanding this morning of the reality that should be ours from day to day of walking with the power of God, the grace of God, to live a life that is bringing honor and glory to God because of our obedience to the mind and will of God for our daily walk. And I mentioned that if you just read through this on a casual reading, you may sense that Peter is just throwing out some casual ideas of, you know, this random thought, this random thought, this way we should do, this should happen in our life, we should love each other, we should dress a certain way, and, and different things. And, and he talks about uh, applying the grace of God and sprinkling of the blood and, 
and all these things. And in verse 22 of chapter 1, he says, Seeing that ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Live a sanctified life that's under the control of the Holy Spirit, and that it and it is it is happening, and. perfect model of what God has asked us to live out on a daily basis. And so these, are, these, these random thoughts possibly are actually the practical applications of this reality in our life. Now I'd like to read a little further and I want us to notice a couple uh, specific things here. I want to come back to verse 2 in a little bit about, about this the uh, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, I want to spend a good bit of time understanding what that really means. But let's go on with verse 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who? Who is it for? Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice. Now, though for a season if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And so, we're looking at the timetable uh, from when he wrote until the appearing of Jesus Christ. But there is a sense in which this was applicable to, to those who died in the Lord after his time and before our time, because we're all going to experience the fulfillment and completion of our salvation at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And then the realities will be confirmed. The spiritual uh, experience that we're looking for and, and the hope that we uh, imbibe and experience will be uh, accomplished and completed when Christ returns. And so it's applicable, has been applicable to all those <clears throat> since Peter's writing until now and even beyond now until Christ returns. You notice in verse 5, he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. The message title is a faith that reveals the power of God. And so I want to challenge us. Are we living in our daily experience the realities of power that is available to us? And what is that power? And how does, how does it work? What does it look like? Why is it available? What makes it available? Those are some questions I hope we can have answered in our minds this morning. Paul said, I fight the good fight of faith. 
Now, we often think of fighting as something that is a way of returning retaliation or, or establishing retaliation for offenses or something that's not, uh, unjust. But actually, this word fighting has the idea of persistence. And the encouragement is that we persist in getting it done God's way. Fighting is not easy. It takes effort. It takes resolve. And Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 9, 26, he says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. <clears throat> in other words, it's not just an easy experience. And in 1 Timothy 6, 12, he admonishes Timothy, he says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and has professed a good profession before many witnesses. And toward the end of his life, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And so persistence, the persistence fighting is for the purpose of keeping the faith. I want to challenge us this morning. What's your faith like? How is it functioning? Is it is it getting the job done like it should? And I say that not to put you in your place, if not, not to, con uh, to condescend to you and say, I've got it fixed, figured out and I'm doing it. I'm worried about you. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just challenging each one of us. And actually, one of the reasons for this message is I need this challenge. It's pretty easy to, to uh, get into a mundane ritual routine of living that we have established certain issues in our life, certain patterns, certain practices, and, and we just know what's expected. And we can just go through those without really operating out of obedience by faith. And I wanna talk about a couple of these in a very practical way in a little bit. And Peter refers to them and I wanna, I wanna bring them out. But I just want us to understand the challenge this morning is to challenge us to, to experience the reality of our faith and to make it a real daily experience that our life is an expression of that faith by our obedience to the word of God and, and to the Holy Spirit's call upon our life to do things God's way. But to do that, we need to be willing to fight. And what I mean by that, I've already stated, that we have that determination for persistence in getting it done God's way. It's not easy, I said, and Peter attests to this, and I'm gonna jump ahead a ways and just bring a point out that he makes later in his letter. Peter says that we must have the mind of Christ and be willing to suffer. That indicates that it's not easy. It takes persistence. It takes determination. It takes commitment, resolve. You know, we have uh, just come across the threshold of a new year, and, and that's often a time to resolve to do better or, or, or accomplish some goals that we haven't, or maybe even continue on accomplishing goals that we've set before. Well, I want, to, I want to encourage us in this that if that's what your mindset is or that's something you're attempting, uh, hopefully I, I'm helping equip you to better do that by our message this morning. That 
<clears throat> to live the Christian life and be victorious and to, and to keep stepping forward in perfection, it's, it's, there's a call to be persistent, to fight, to give it our all, to put our strength in it, our determination in it. And this is something that I, I've, I've been challenged in my own life. I see my weaknesses. Am I willing to say, well, that's just me, that's my weaknesses? Uh, I should do better, and I want to do better. But really, do I take, take it seriously enough to, to bring it to God and by faith persist in asking for the Spirit's grace and help and, and go to the Scriptures and be challenged by the power of the Word of God and the promises that are there to express my faith in so that when I see a promise, I grab it by faith, that it can become a reality. There are a lot of promises in Scripture that we don't get the benefit of because we either don't know they're there or we don't establish this determination about faith. I'm going, to get, I'm going to claim that promise and let the grace of God make it reality in my life. <clears throat> and so even though we are in the flesh, God has made provision for us to be able to to step forward by faith, by his power, to higher, higher levels of sanctification and obedience to his program, his will, his purposes, his way. <clears throat> now going back to um, verse 3. Actually, I'm going to go back to verse 2 of chapter 1 where it mentions obedience and sprinkling of the blood. I'd like for us to understand a little better perhaps or, or be reminded of what he's speaking to here. First of all, I'd like to just say that the blood we refer to a lot in our, in our religion. Uh, it's not just our religion, but it's in our, our faith. Understanding the scriptures, the blood is a very relevant subject. But do we, do we understand it? Is, is it something that we um, can apply in our life? Yes, I think we have. And yet, I think it's appropriate that we renew our understanding of what that means and how it affects our daily life experience. And so, what, is, what does the reference to blood mean? Blood is actually a, a, a term referring to an, an article of our human anatomy, or maybe that's not quite the right term, uh, physical makeup. And that, in that element that's being referred to about our bodies is one of the most important elements that has to do with our continuing life. Because without blood, we can't exist. Um, and so blood, and there's other things that ha can happen to our body, functions that we can't exist. But it's the one that, that is used as, as a defining definition of what life is. If you, have, if you have your blood, then you have life. If you don't have your blood, you don't have life. And so the giving of blood is actually a way of saying, of experiencing death or giving your life in, in death. And so when Jesus gave his life, he gave his blood. That's interesting to think about because on the cross, 
There would have been no blood ex expanded had the soldier not pierced his side. I don't know if you ever thought about that or not. But the two thieves on either side of him did not shed their blood. But it was, it was God's will that Jesus complete this process and allow his blood to leave his body in the process of giving his life. Now there's, there's a reason for that, I believe, a uh, number of reasons, but one I want to bring to our attention, that is that that there's an aspect of fulfilling prophecy that was happening here, but not just fulfilling prophecy, it was fulfilling a covenant. As I understand it from my studies, that back in, in yesteryear, back in the years and eons ago, one of the ways that a serious covenant would be administered or made legal, uh, definite, was that there would be an understanding that uh, it would be, if it was called a blood covenant, it was a serious thing. So serious that if one of the other people um, <clears throat> broke their part of the covenant, that their blood would be required. In other words, it was a life or death matter that they kept their, their agreement in a covenant. And this is what actually was in focus when God made his covenant with Abraham. At one point, back in uh, Genesis chapter 23, we have God reiterating his plans for his covenant with Abraham. And he had him kill three animals that were three years old and lay them out along with several uh, birds. See if I've got this right. Yes, uh, actually it's chapter 15, Genesis. Verse nine, and he said unto him, take me an heifer of three years old and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against the other, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep, deep, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him, and he, God, said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And, and it goes on to tell and prophesies what will happen. And it came, verse 17, And it came to pass that when the sun was down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. Now, it doesn't mention the blood. But there was blood shed in, in those three uh, large animals. And this was a blood covenant. It was God giving Abraham the assurance that he would be faithful. He was asking Abraham to be faithful as well. Now there is a sense in which this, this covenant um, doesn't speak directly to, to Abraham's uh, obligation to it, but it's implied. <clears throat> I 
I'd like then to go to uh, Exodus, Exodus chapter 24. <clears throat> we have more of a, a defining uh, aspect of this laid out. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I said Exodus. I'm looking at, well, yes, Exodus 24, 8, <clears throat> and then we'll go to Leviticus. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Now, if we back up a little bit, we see <clears throat> that what was going on here. It says um, in verse 2, And Moses alone shall come near the Lord. Well, let me back up. Verse 1. And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, and he, and he named several others, come up along with 70 of the elders of Israel and worship ye afar off. Then he asked Moses to come up on up. And Moses went up by himself with these others, uh, parked the way up the mount. <clears throat> and Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and 12 pillars according to 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men and children, and he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. Again, they're shedding blood in this process. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do, uh, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. And so the blood was making an, a requirement of them to do what they said or else they were responsible with their blood, with their life. Well, God knew that they weren't able to accomplish that. And this harks back to the need for blood to be shed for sin directly from the result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. The first blood that was shed was when God killed animals to make skins for Adam and Eve. And that was actually a type of this understanding that to be re, uh, brought back into the presence of God, blood needs to be shed. There needs to be um, a sacrifice of blood because of the curse that was, uh, because of sin, there was death. There was a sense in which God required the blood of of Adam and Eve because of their sin, uh, not immediately, and of course they, he didn't uh, require their blood per se, but he required their physical life eventually. And so we're, we're coming back to a, a renewal of this reality with the children of Israel, with Moses, and blood is in focus again. 
Now, Moses went on further to establish the, the tabernacle and the tabernacle worship system. And in that system, there needed to be a, re, a renewing of the covenant of God once a year. There needed to be, there needed to be blood brought, uh, animals brought and, and sacrificed, and their blood then was, was uh, rendered. And the high priest took this blood once a year from the altar and took it back into the mercy seat and made atonement for all the people, first for his own sins, and then for all the people. But then in Hebrews chapter 9, it says that Jesus fulfilled what was planned from the beginning, that he took his own blood into the holy of holies, into the presence of God in our behalf because of sin, to, to take care of the sin issue. But he didn't do it every year. He said once was enough. That accomplished what was necessary. Now, the way we experience the benefit of that blood that was shed is by our faith in that process. Our acknowledgement that we are sinners and that we need to have our sins remitted. And that can only happen through a blood sacrifice. And Jesus was the one that gave his blood for that to happen. Now, I might make note here, I've, I've shared this with you before, I'm sure, but just to remind you, and maybe some of the younger ones haven't grasped this thought, but the reason Jesus' blood could take care of the sin problem was because his blood was not tainted with sin. You see, there was no man available. There was no man that was possible to give his life and shed his blood to meet the need, the requirement of that blood offering to cover or cleanse and take away sin. Because <clears throat> how could you take a sinner's blood who was guilty and his blood amount to anything in the covenant of answering for the co covenant experience of sanctification and holiness being offered to God through the sacrifice? But because Jesus had never sinned, his blood was pure. Fact is, here's another thought that occurred to me later in life and is, is a, a blessing to think about. And that is that, that Jesus actually was not killed. Um, he, was, he was put through the process. Those who uh, expressed their hatred on him actually were, were guilty of murder. But scripture says that at a certain point on the cross, he cried out to God and gave up his spirit, gave his spirit to God. Now that's my terms. But he gave his life. And the reason he had to give his life was because of what I just mentioned. He was pure. He was not under the curse. And so he could not die. The curse of sin was death. He was not entitled to die or he was not um, under the condemnation of death. And so unless he gave his life, he couldn't die. And I believe in my heart, and this could be, is a, a debatable issue out there with some, but I believe that, that when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me on the cross? It was because as a man in the physical reality of what he was experiencing, God had turned away that protection that was, was his by right of being perfect. But God withdrew that 
and allowed this experience of suffering and torment and misery that was brought to him because of the challenge of evil against him. He allowed that. You know, earlier in Christ's ministry, they tried to kill him. And they would actually plan to kill him, but he would just disappear out of their sight. Well, that was God's hand of protection. It was due him. It was, it was his. And he experienced it. He relied on it. But this time, he knew it was coming, but he was experiencing the reality of it, I believe. And that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, he had actually, on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, from that human perspective, had prayed and, and asked his father, please let this cup pass from me. Isn't there some other way we can accomplish it? And the, the answer was, no, you need to do it. And it says that, that after the third time, he surrendered his will in that and said to his father, whatever your will is, I'm willing. You see, there's a sense in which he gave his life in the garden. He actually gave up his right to life and his surrender and his submission. Okay, how does this apply to us on a daily basis? How do we make this practical? That clock up there is practical and it's moving right along. <clears throat> I'd like to go back to 1 Peter and just uh, skim through some of the things that are, that are there. Um, <clears throat> I noted, I read verse 7, and I want to just notice there a little bit. It says, That the trial of your faith, being more precious than that of gold which perisheth, though it be tried with fire. The purest of pure gold that has been tried by fire and made it pure, the best there is, 24 carat, whatever. That's not even as precious to God as your soul that has, has gone through the fire of testing of your faith and you come out victorious. God is looking for that kind of gold. Are you gold for God? That's, that's something I want us to be able to think about. Does God see me as gold or do I falter? Do I jump out of the fire when my faith's being tested? Well, there's some practical ways we can evaluate that. And I want to get to those. Um, in verse 21, it says, who by him do believe in God that raised that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. And how is this demonstrated? How is the power revealed? Verse 22, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. And I'm not going to go into that. I think you all talked about that in Sunday school this morning. But then it, get, then it goes on to say how this is possible. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but the incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The word of God. That is the realities of who God is, his character, his virtues. They're recorded for us. And as we read the word of God, we can understand, we can perceive the mind and thinking of God. And he wants us to. He wants us to have that connection with the realities of who God is, how he thinks, and then operate accordingly. And it's by faith in that reality. It's in, in claiming the truth of, of, the, uh, uh, of the word of God and the character of God through the help of the Holy Spirit as we yield, as we surrender, as we acknowledge our need. 
that then we can continue to be victorious. And we find ourselves doing things by the power of God that in the flesh are not possible or not likely. And Peter gives us some of those, those things to, to uh, check list on, to do a checklist on. In verse 20, uh, verse chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, all hypocrisies and envyings, and all evil speakings. Wow. You know, it's kind of easy to be frustrated with somebody, to judge somebody who, uh, having, who having made a misjudgment and maybe done something that didn't make sense, we couldn't understand, and we're willing to talk about it. Maybe tell somebody else about it. Maybe kind of in a condescending way, condemning them for not being able to do a better job. Here it's saying, evil speakings shouldn't happen. I'll tell you what the alternative is. When we know of someone's weakness, we know of someone's failure, the alternative is intercessory prayer. Actually, the scripture says, I believe it's John that says, that we should pray, if someone sins, we should pray for that person that their sin not be counted against them. I don't quite understand that. But I want to say this, that if we find ourselves doing that, we're making it easier for that person to get victory. Another place he's, well, actually, in, in Peter's writing somewhere, I, I don't have the verse, but he says something to this effect, that, that love covers a multitude of sins. Well, if you truly love somebody, instead of talking about them and, and putting them in their place, maybe telling somebody else how much they need to learn, if you pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to them, you're actually giving the Holy Spirit more opportunity to get into their life and work on them than if you don't pray. And you, because of your intercessory love, are helping prevent them from sinning more and correcting the issue they're dealing with. That's how our love can cover sins, is by our giving of ourselves in love with interest in that person's well-being in prayer. Sometimes prayer takes feet and takes a voice. And we go to that person in love. And scripture says that we should bear one another's burdens and help each other and challenge each other by the word. I don't like that word challenge, but in a sense it is. But it's not effective unless we have that kind of love that's interceding, so caring that we spend time talking to God about that person. And then we go with that kind of love and, and share with them from the word of God. This is the water of the word that we help cleanse other people, bring them into sanctification. Well, I want to move on to another part of, of uh, Scripture, uh, Peter's writings. In verse 13 of chapter 2, it says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, or unto them which are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your, your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. Another uh, translation calls that, uh, I don't remember the exact word, but it's the idea of using the opportunity, the advantage of saying, well, we have freedom in Christ, therefore we have special privileges. And we can do things that aren't appropriate because we we are free in Christ. And I've heard that in the political, religious realm, religious political realm, a lot lately. 
the, the, the right-leaning political group tends to quote their religious responsibility to get out and do things and, and stop things and make things happen. And it's, there's a sense in which they're calling their freedom to get out and do things from a vengeful uh, approach. It's not after Christ and his way. <clears throat> Now, what I want us to notice there, that that's the first uh, aspect of submission. He goes on and, and brings out more aspects of submission because submission is actually one of the, one of the, the uh, defining aspects of who we are. Jesus was our example in the Garden of Gethsemane in submitting to his Father and the call of his, his sacrifice to meet the needs, to express the, the divine love that God and, and Jesus had for mankind. It wouldn't have happened if he wouldn't have submitted. He submitted to suffering. And Peter, uh, later on in this passage, refers to this often. He says, you, you're supposed to even have the mind of Christ to think like he did and be willing to suffer. Well, suffering is actually sometimes uh, what we call going through that that uh, painful reality of submitting to somebody else. It hurts sometimes. We have to lay down our, our perspective and accept somebody else's. And there he, I just went over that there are things in, in government, uh, laws that, in the civil way that we're supposed to honor and, and submit to, and that's a demonstration of our proper attitude toward God. That's what he says, and it becomes a witness to those people. And then in verse 18 it says, servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the, to the gentle, good and gentle, but also to, 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 the, to the froward, those who are not so nice to deal with. Need, need to be able to have a, a submitting servant attitude in those situations. Now, we're not slaves or servants in that respect, but we do have superiors that we answer to in workplace, in different places, and this, this, this principle applies. <clears throat> and I'm going to have to... Uh, I'd like to read verse 20 yet. For what glory is it? If, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patient. In other words, if you're punished or you're dealt, dealt with because of something you did wrong, and you take that patiently, you can feel pretty good about it. You say, well, I didn't sass back. I, didn't, I, you know, I admitted I was wrong. And so I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I can feel pretty good about myself. But he says, that's not where it's at. But if, he says, when ye do well, and suffer for it and take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. Now this is a very practical thing that touches all of us at home. Did you ever have somebody miscalculate what your motive was and kind of put you in your place because they understood you to have not done well? I expect we've all experienced that one way or another. There's an opportunity to submit, to surrender my perspective, my will, and, and just commit it to God. And Paul even uses that term of committing it to God who judges justly. <clears throat> well, I'd like to get into chapter 3 now because it says in verse 25 of chapter 2, For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. And then he goes on to say the next verse, of the first verse of the next chapter, likewise, likewise. 
Well, verse 25 isn't really what he's pointing to, except that that's where the power is, that's where the connection is. But it's going back to that thing of suffering. In verse 23, it says, when he was reviled, speaking of Jesus as our, as our example, actually in verse 21, he says, for even hitherto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was God found in his mouth, who when he's reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. And so on. And then, uh, well, verse 4, 24. Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness. It's by his stripes we have this opportunity. His suffering. And then it says in verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, likewise. That's, we're supposed to follow that mindset. Oh, wait a minute. This is just for the women. How's that? Likewise, you wives, be subject to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may be one with, uh, without, without the word, may be one by the conversation or by your conduct of life. And verse 2 says, While they behold your chaste conversation, coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning, the plaiting the hair and wearing of gold and putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden woman of the heart. Uh, another translation says the hidden person of the heart. Uh, man works because we understand what it means. <clears throat> but let it be that hidden, virtuous entity within you that is what defines you and gives you your, your position of character before God and each other. And I want to say this. Recently, this thought occurred to me. I was in public, and I noticed that the women with their, their gold uh, earrings, their bracelets, their finger rings, and so on, um, some of them go all out to express something about themselves of how valuable they are. I've seen women with a dozen bracelets on an arm. I saw one lady one time with a ring on every finger, and some of them had two. And, and I'm sure she had gold hanging down off her ears. And, you know, that was supposed, I, I believe, that was supposed to identify her as someone who was very wealthy or wanted to, you to think so and felt so confident that she had established her, her worth to you by her outward expression. You know what my response to that is? I feel sorry for slaves. You know, if... If there was an entity that she was associated with that forced her to wear all that stuff, she would probably say, this is unjust. You're forcing me to, to submit and surrender to all this inconvenience and all this rattling stuff and, and finger rings that get in the way of doing my work. You know, there would be that kind of complaint. But when it's derived from this heart of vanity that I want to establish my worth, you know what that says to me? That says to me that the inside of that person probably is very hollow, very insecure. The more you have to put on outside makes me believe that the less there is inside of that, that, that character that is at peace with God. And that's what Peter's saying here. If you have that, that value, that intrinsic um, 
personal value that's established in your heart because you are God's, you are precious, you've been bought with the blood of Jesus and you've been accepted, your faith is functioning and you're a valuable asset in the kingdom of God. Wow, can you improve on that? You know what? People around you want that kind of people around them. I appreciate that in my wife. I appreciate that in other people that don't need to establish somehow that they're valuable with externals. And I want to take that a little further. It says here, and I've actually read commentaries and heard sermons of, of uh, more liberal-minded people who have said that where it says that uh, putting on apparel, well, that makes this verse not mean anything because women always have to put something on. And here it says putting on apparel. There's, uh, what's it talking about? And so he goes on to say, so you can wear your rings and you can dress like you want to because this verse doesn't make sense. Well, the putting on of apparel means the putting on of extra, more than necessary. And it's implied that it's there for the same reason that jewelry and so on. And so it, there is a tendency of an insecure lady to want to somehow gain some security, some footing of, of self-confidence. Well, I'm running out of time, but I want to... Uh, talk about this just a bit more it says but let the hidden man the woman of the heart even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price for after the, this manner in the old time the holy men the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection unto their own husbands even as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement now, you husbands might be kind of afraid and have amazement if your wife calls you Lord. But uh, the thought is that they, they offer reverence and respect to their husbands. That's submission. Part of submission is involved. <clears throat> then it goes on to say, likewise, ye husbands. Oh, now, men, we have a responsibility too. Likewise goes back to what was referred to in chapter 2 about the mindset of being willing to suffer for Christ's sake. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving unto the wife, giving honor unto the wife. And so honor and respect needs to go back the other way. There, there needs to be that appreciation for the fact that the wife is called to this extra responsibility of submission. And, and it's interesting what comes next. It says, unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. What does that weaker vessel mean? Well, we could, we could contort that to mean something it doesn't. It doesn't mean that she's inferior. It doesn't mean that she doesn't have as much spiritual clout with God. It doesn't mean that her character is challenged because she's not a man. I believe what it means is that she is more vulnerable because of the requirements on her. I don't know, you, we men don't realize sometimes how much a woman has to have faith to trust us and to just let us, put us in God's hands and just let us uh, experience God's direction to come out just right for her and her experience. That's a, that's a real challenge. Uh, and, and it may have women... Uh, might, it might be when a man isn't really doing his job very well, he isn't really taking serious his responsibilities, 
that it, it causes insecurity in the wife. Or, and so she might have developed a covetous spirit of wanting more money or more things or more something uh, just as a matter of security because the husband isn't providing this sense of security. But the answer to that is found in the last part of that verse. Grace, your heirs together of the grace of life. And if there's a proper respect going back and forth, then our, the prayers can be answered for each other and, and as a whole. And so if we are going to be nonchalant and we're the tough guy and, and, and we uh, are due the reverence and respect of our wives, but we don't give them consideration and realize that they're vulnerable and try to meet their needs and help them to find security because we're paying attention and we're concerned. If we don't do that, then our prayers won't get through so well because we're not really being sincere and obedient to our calling, representation of, of what God is asking of us. In the end, end of, uh, toward the end of chapter 4, it says, if, yet, yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And by the way, sometimes that suffering can be the husband might feel like he, he hasn't been reverenced like he should, and so he doesn't have to do what he should. Well, actually, that could be suffering, and we need to take it joyfully and take our place anyway. And God will be glorified, and it opens up the opportunity for God to do it his way and to bless he goes on to say, verse 17, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. I hadn't really planned to end on that note, but I feel like that does give us a summary point. <clears throat> If we're dying to self, that's applying the blood. That's sprinkling the blood in our experience. And so death to self is the only way we can have resurrected life through Christ. And that's what that thing of sprinkling of the blood means. It, we're sanctified. We're made holy as we're willing to surrender and submit our life and die to self. And give, give of ourself, give of our will, give it up like Jesus gave up his life to his Father for us. And we give up our will for the benefit of the church, for others, and to allow the Holy Spirit to, to have control because we've let go, we relinquished, relinquished our personal will in life, and we're willing to be obedient to the truths of the Scripture. Then the glory is to God, and the blessing is ours. And the church can be blessed, and we can experience the power, the wonder-working power, that happens because of the blood of Christ being applied daily in a life experience. The blood of Christ being applied means that I'm willing to die to myself, give up, apply the blood so that the covenant relationship between me and God and I can experience his promises can be brought to fruition. May God add his blessing as we allow the spirit. Let's seek the spirit. Let's fight the good fight. Let's 
persevere in seeking God's will and inviting the Spirit to have his way in our life and help us sort this out and to know what's happening and what God's will is as we stay in touch with the Word of God. Let's stand for closing prayer. Brother Jeff, would you lead us?